zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to the first ever vintage video Patreon pick where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, listener Justin Aylett has asked us to review Burnt Offerings, released October 18, 1976. It was written by William F. Nolan and Dan Curtis, based on a novel by Robert Morosco, directed by Dan Curtis, and released by United Artists. In the late 60s, playwright Robert Morosco began work on an original screenplay entitled Burnt Offerings, which caught the attention of graduate producer Lawrence Terman. And as early as 1969, Bob Fosse was briefly attached, but amusingly, Singin' in the Rain director Stanley Donnan talked him out of it, stating, It's no damn good. Why are you doing it? <laughs> Apparently, Fosse didn't return the favor when Donnan took over directing Saturn 3 a decade Aww. later. I, bet, I love that movie. I, yeah, I mean, that's unfair to Saturn 3, but I don't understand why this would be a Bob Fosse thing anyways. Uh, just because Robert Morosco was a musical writer, and uh, and so Bob Fosse works on musical films, even though this isn't a musical. Yeah. Um, I think that was at least how they got connected with each other. Okay. The project fizzled, and after some time, Morosco retooled the story as a novel, which was eventually published in 1973. Evidently still keen on filming the story, producers approached Dark Shadows creator Dan Curtis to direct, in the wake of his Dark Shadows feature film adaptations. He was not impressed with the novel's anticlimactic finish, changed for the film, and supposedly remarked, I bet some idiot who doesn't know what he's doing will come along and make this. Directors George Roy Hill and Mark Rydell were approached next and passed on the project before producers circled back to Dan Curtis. <laughs> Screenwriter William F. Nolan was brought on to adapt the novel and together with Curtis concocted a new ending. The creepy chauffeur character was entirely an invention of the novel's adapters, though I found conflicting reports as to whether it came from a childhood experience of Nolan's or of Curtis's. The film was shot in just 30 days, which single location doesn't sound impossible for this. So wait, wait, I'm sorry. Are you telling me that one of them did have the experience of being haunted by their driver of their mother's hearse? Yes. Okay. But I forget which one. Okay. <laughs> Just to be clear. They were creeped out by a chauffeur <laughs> as a child. Okay. Yeah. Right. Production began at the Dunsmuir House in Oakland, California. The house was built in 1899 as a wedding gift from Alexander Dunsmuir to his wife, but he died on their honeymoon before setting foot in it. And less than two years later, she had also died of cancer. It is what now did he die of? Uh, honeymooning. Honeymoons. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. Just things I could have looked up. <laughs> just, it just seems odd that he died on their honeymoon. It was like... Broken heart. What? Aww. How did that happen already? Was it the chauffeur? <laughs> yeah. Heart attack. Freaked out by a chauffeur. The house is now owned by the city of Oakland, and it's part of a park open to the public. Burnt Offerings was the first film to make use of the location, which would later show up in the first Phantasm, A View to a Kill, So I Married an Axe Murderer, and in the 99 Gloria remake, among others. 
The interiors and pool used in the film are all original to the house, though the pool was damaged in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and is rarely used. The greenhouse was actually built for the film, but kept installed after the production. Hmm. Do you guys recall the last time we had a film build something onto a historic house that the owners insisted on keeping? It's a ways back. The Changeling? More recent than that, but another sort of haunted house-ish place. Private (laughs) Eyes. The owners of that film's Biltmore estate shooting location insisted on keeping the rotating walls installed for a joke in the film. So would I. You might be shocked to learn that this is one of Stephen King's favorite horror films, and his novel The Shining was published one year after its release. King has freely admitted to the inspiration he took from this story. Hmm. We open on a station wagon driving through the country. We start with a very Shining vibe, but this is, again, pre-Shining. Oliver Reed, as Father Ben Rolfe, is driving with wife Marion, played by Karen Black in the passenger seat, and Lee Montgomery as their son David in the back seat. They arrive at their destination, 17 Shore Road. A creepy score settles in as they traverse the long drive up to the house. I was already being reminded of Five Easy Pieces having Karen Black in the passenger seat as they're driving on this country road. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that brings me back to Jack Nicholson also. As the home enters view, Ben is convinced they have the wrong place. Is that our house? No, lady, that is not our house. No way is that our house. Either because it's much bigger than they expected or because it's in such a sorry state, I can't tell. What a waste. Ben suggests that maybe there's another guest house or something, but Marion is convinced that this is it, and they move inside. There seems to be another guest house. There is. On. It's yeah. more of just a garage, I think. Yeah. Or a carriage house, I guess would be the term. Sure. Yeah, it's old yeah, enough I'm to Yeah, I'm with you, that. Richard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I was like... <laughs> Jesse, beg me up on this one. <laughs> Reinforcements! As they climb the intimidating porch, Ben quotes Alfred Lord Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade about the Battle of Balaclava on October 25th, 1854 during the Crimean War. Forward into the Valley of Death, road to 600. Ben knocks several times and swats Davy hard in the back of the head before someone finally answers the door. A handyman and a filthy wife-beater with a big toothless smile on his face. The man introduces himself as Walker and invites them in. A few steps inside, Marion already seems in love with the place, as Ben tries to verify that this is the structure they were talking about renting. They are escorted into a sitting room. Walker offers to go and collect the Nebses, and laughs at his own joke, though I'm not quite sure I understand it. What are the Nebses? I have no idea. I tried looking it up several ways. I couldn't figure out what Nebses meant. Uh, I think it's a reference to something. I'm sure it is. When I first saw this, because we hadn't gotten to their last name yet, I assumed that was their last name. David and Ben step outside, and Ben warns his son not to stray too far from the house. Marion wanders alone into the greenhouse and is depressed to find mostly dead plants within. Ben finds her here, and she's almost on the verge of tears to see it. Such waste kills me the second time that she says that and it bothered me such a waste yeah yeah very quickly coming back to the same line he coaches her back into the house and asks to keep the door to this room closed to keep out the stink of dead plants they find a wall of framed photographs of the house from all different time periods dating back maybe a hundred years 
The owner, Roz Allardyce, played by Eileen Heckart, arrives, but before she chats with the renters, she grumpily reminds Walker to take a broken mirror out of the house, and he calls her a grouchy old bastard to her face. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a mirror cracked? <laughs> was it the mirror cracked? Was it the boogeyman? <laughs> no, boogeyman was before the mirror cracked. <laughs> And of course, this is also the first indication that bad luck is likely incoming beside the score. Roz mentions her brother is on his way down. Everyone does their introductions and they start to dig into the details of the rental. Amazingly, it seems they've come all this way without any foreknowledge of the price or even a specific price range. Yeah. It was reasonable. Whatever that means. I mean, that means different things to different people. The ad did say reasonable. Uh, very reasonable, as I recall. And so it is for the right people. She has a few questions for them first, and we learn that Ben's 74-year-old Aunt Elizabeth will be staying with them for the summer, from July 1st to Labor Day. Roz also asks if they trust themselves to take good care of the place, but insists that it's really no trouble. I don't know, with a house this size and, and only my wife, I don't know that we're... The house takes care of itself, Mr. Roth. Believe me. She reads them a quote of 900, and just as Ben tries to turn the offer down, she specifies that that's the total price for the full summer. In 2022 bucks, that's about $4,570, or a little over 50 bucks a night. Which isn't, like, an incredible deal. Well, for a house, like, an estate like this, it mm. is. If you needed this much space, it's a great deal. But yeah. they clearly don't. There's three of them, or four of them with the yeah. aunt. And also, there's a lot of maintenance. Right. Like... You know, they, they have to fill the pool. And... <laughs> it's, a, it's a DIY summer home. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Suddenly, Roz's brother Arnold is screaming for help from his jammed stair lift. Walker gets it moving again, and Ben and Marion argue quietly about the offer until Roz rolls in brother Arnold, played by Burgess Meredith. Arnold is excited to learn a young boy might be staying here and asks to see him. We get a shot deep across the yard of David climbing around on a rotted gazebo and then falling to the ground, hurting his knee. It seems pretty bad, but Arnold doesn't mention it to his parents. The Rolfs ask if this place is rented often, and they say they're just looking for a bit of a break. The siblings continue singing the house's praises for a while, sensing perhaps Ben's disinterest in committing, and he scoffs, amused by the hard sell. <laughs> must seem funny to you but when people love a house the way my brother and i love this one oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to be rude it's just that uh, well i was waiting for the catch catch after pretending for a moment not to understand the concept of a catch they admit the catch is that the house comes with a tenant for the summer their elderly mother who never leaves the house or even her room and will need some mild looking after in the form of occasional meals three a day to be exact left in her sitting room no you probably never even see her she sleeps most of the time ben tries to urge marion out the door so they can discuss the offer in private by which he presumably means turn it down but just then david has finally finished his long and painful crawl to the house and shows them <laughs> his injured knee <laughs> roz leads them to the kitchen for cleanup and band-aids Without even turning his head, Arnold spots Walker carrying a potted plant and asks where he thinks he's taking it. Who's it said it was dead? Did she? Well, look again. The plant is growing bright green on one side. Huh, ain't that something? 
In the car on the way home, Marion tells Ben he was rude, but Ben reminds her that they seemed totally crazy. I don't think they seemed totally crazy to me. They seemed. They could have been weirder. I, I didn't. I've never seen this movie before. Yeah, and and so I didn't know quite what to expect. I felt like they were they were hamming up a little bit, and I was like, okay, is that what this the kind of movie that this is going to be? Is just like, oh, the house takes care of itself. It's yeah. like it's like, well, that's a weird way to put it. Yeah. Like, um, so they they had a weird mannerism, but nothing that I would say like. You know, for people who live out in the country, like, yeah. it's like, okay, maybe this is just the way they are. I didn't think he was being rude to them, and I didn't think that there were any, like, crazy red flags from, from the homeowners. But he has a serious, <laughs> let's make a pun, he has a serious reservation about uh, booking this house, and that there's an old lady there. Who... Yeah, that's the big thing that you know I don't want to be here. That, that that's like liability and you're taking care of somebody and he says what if she dies and and like the and his wife's like oh please like that's a serious concern yeah and three meals a day isn't nothing either yeah if you're asking people to prepare three meals a day for a person you're asking them to babysit her and you're charging them to stay here yeah at home they discuss the offer again in bed and ben points out how off-putting it is that they would trust their home and elderly mother to complete strangers for such a paltry fee Marion offers to handle the old woman herself. She'd be my responsibility. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. What if she's to die? Oh my God. Marion makes it clear how important this is to her, and Ben admits that he wants her to be happy. And then, as as he like kind of cuddles up to her, he he re- reaches around and gropes her pretty handily. Yeah, and I was like, I'm sure uh... this wasn't discussed ahead of time either. We see a phone ringing at the house, and Ben is calling to confirm their reservations for July 1st. The station wagon comes barreling down the same country road, this time loaded to the gills with luggage and an additional passenger in the back, Ben's Aunt Elizabeth, played by Betty Davis. Are you comfortable back there? No. Just about everything in me is numb. (laughs) Except, of course, your mouth, Auntie. Angie. (laughs) Elizabeth is just as enamored with the house as Marion when they get there. Ben notices the place looks abandoned, and they find a note from the siblings wishing them luck. As they move inside, Marion promises to check on the old lady. Inside, Mrs. Allardyce's room is very dark. There's a sitting room with a bedroom off the side, and she knocks on a door to announce their arrival, but the woman never answers or comes to the door. Marion sees a tray of the woman's half-eaten breakfast, indicating that at the very least she seems to have eaten today. She looks down to the car outside and sees David unloading things, and then pulls open the curtains to let some light into the room. A table along the wall is crowded with framed photographs, a collection Roz described earlier, and Marion fiddles with a box on the corner of the table, and then one of the pictures. Stop touching this stuff, lady. This is a priceless collection that this woman just sits around and organizes over and over again. Stop touching her things. Evidently, one of these photos is actually a cameo from director Dan Curtis. As she scans the faces of the photo subjects, she notices a common expression. They almost look frightened right at the moment the picture was taken with wide eyes and pursed lips. Ben calls her back downstairs and she brings the finished breakfast tray down with her. Marion tells Ben and Elizabeth to please leave Mrs. Allardyce's duty to her. She doesn't want to confuse or frighten the old lady with a bunch of new faces. David calls them down to show off something he found in the kitchen. It's a fridge loaded to the brim with food and beverages, including a couple bottles of champagne and a plate of fried chicken. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a plate of fried chicken in a refrigerator? I do. What was it? Student bodies. That's right. 
I mean, I had I had questions about this scene, and I don't know if it would be getting into spoilers or if we care about spoilers. Is your question what caused these things to be in this refrigerator? Correct. It does seem pretty mystical that yeah. this refrigerator knew exactly what they wanted to be in there. Yes. When the people who live here seem fairly out of touch. That was it. Yep. <laughs> that, that was my comment. I, I agree that it, it's suspicious at the least. David leads Elizabeth to a stuffed pantry as well, but the lights aren't working. The freezer is full of frozen meat, too. Ben struggles with the champagne, first pinching his finger and then blasting foam across the kitchen table. David returns to the pantry and thinks he spotted a case of ding-dongs. Now the lights seem to work, and his suspicion is confirmed. There are ding-dongs. Did he just pinch his finger or did he cut his hand? He hurt himself, yeah. Yeah, he hurt himself. Which is what fixed the light in the pantry. Yeah. The camera slowly pushes into the now-functional light bulb above the pantry. Marion prepares a rather elaborate meal for the old woman, but returns hours later to find it untouched. She comes near knocking on the door again, but decides instead to simply bring down the meal. The next day, Elizabeth is doing an oil painting of the gazebo as Ben and David pull up the driveway with groceries. Inside, Marion is vacuuming the stairs. Hey, slave. Hi. Hey, slave. Hi. (laughs) Ben is impressed with all the cleaning and remodeling she's done while they were out. He invites her to watch them fix the pool, but she can't stop polishing things. Outside, David is clearing the nearly empty pool of branches while Ben struggles with the pump. Dave mocks his father for not knowing how to use the equipment. Aren't you finished that thing yet? Listen, if you're so goddamn smart, why don't you come up here and fix it yourself, huh? Davey, go show your father how to do it. All right, then I will. Will you quit trying to undermine my parental authority, old lady? <laughs> I really love the relationship they set up between these characters, like, yeah. right away. And also that they're both like legends in Hollywood. It just mm-hmm. makes it fun that they're playing with each other this way, even though they reportedly hated each other on set. Reportedly, Betty Davis hated everybody on yeah. set. So. <laughs> of every set ever. Yeah. True to his word, David corrects his father's form immediately. Looks like dad wasn't aware of something called a cutoff that will basically prevent the pump from operating until it is disengaged. Dad bets his father $5 it'll work now, and it does. Benji, you're a mechanical genius! Father and son splash each other with the pump's freshly flowing water. Yeah, which is gross, by the way. Yeah, it's going to be because sitting this is... in this tube for years. Yeah, yeah the, the the water that you're pumping out of the pool is like this the gross cesspool water that's been sitting there. No, and like, no they're pumping, no, they're pumping water, water into, into the, pool. the pool. No, they were pumping water out of the pool. I think they were trying to fill the pool. I know that they were going to fill the pool, but before you fill the pool, you get all the gook out of the pool. And they were, like, he was in there cleaning out what was left in there. I think yeah. the, so I think he was pumping the water out of the pool. I, I think they are filling it here. It, 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 I, to me, it looked like the, the, the pump was facing towards the pool. Yes. So the, the export of the water. The to me, it looked like there was a hose going into the water and then just a bunch of water shooting out of the side of it once they got it going, as in I'm pumping the water out of the pool to drain it, but and it, then it, I will clean it and fill it. The water that's rocketing out of the thing, though, is rocketing toward the pool, in uh, into the basin. I disagree. Okay. On a hike later, David and Ben find a graveyard in the woods. We see headstones of Wilma and Spencer Allardyce, and David finds a rusted bicycle, but we never do anything with that. Ben observes that the newest headstones are from the late 1800s, nothing newer. 
Um, at this point, I started to get really frustrated with the level of Vaseline on the lens. Yeah, it does get pretty foggy in places. And I was like, what? what is this supposed to imply or that they're in some kind of... Is it supposed to be foggy? Is it supposed to be kind of like mystical? I, I think that Dan Curtis is a television director <laughs> and that he did 7 million episodes of Dark Shadows and then he did this movie. Which had sets made out of cardboard that you kind of had to obscure yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't used to having a production budget. <laughs> Look, I put saran wrap over the lens every shot. That's how I do things. It keeps the camera fresh. <laughs> Ben suddenly transforms into a creepy child abductor character as a joke. Would you like some candy, little boy? No! No! <laughs> Leave me alone and get away. Run away from me, little boy. <laughs> In Mrs. Allardyce's sitting room, Marion finds another untouched tray of food. She knocks on the door this time and worries aloud that she's hardly eaten anything in the week they've been here implying that at least she's eaten something yes because i can't tell that anything's missing from this tray i was assuming up until this point that she had eaten literally zero food or that the woman left with her children and wasn't even in here or was dead in here those are Mm -hmm. the obvious conclusions yeah the woman's been dead the whole time we get a quick shot of the nearly restored pool and then back up to the sitting room as marianne brings another meal I feel like after a while I would stop bringing food if the person never ate any of it, but we keep feeding our children and they never eat. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently yeah, we it's would. That's just what we do. <laughs> this time there's actually more food missing and Marion looks pleased. David mocks his father for cleaning the pool exclusively with a net instead of employing chlorine at all. Do you guys recall the last time we had a character hesitant to use chlorine in his pool? Oh, I do. What movie was that? Would it be The Formula? The frog is half dead. <laughs> Marion caresses the box on the photo table again and opens it this time to activate a music box. She sits enraptured by the tune and doesn't even seem to hear David inviting her for a swim from downstairs. David sneaks up on Elizabeth to scare the hell out of her, and the pool toy she's been inflating for hours goes sputtering away as she laughs. I don't think that that would happen. No, I no. think this woman would have a heart attack and she wouldn't think it was funny <laughs> that he screamed and the pool in her toy ear. would just drop to the ground. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's like, it's like again, like it's inflated with helium and it's yeah. flying up or, into well, the air somehow. Or like it's like a like pressurized to the point of a, a balloon and like fluttering yeah, away yeah, yeah, in yeah. the air and you're like, No, this is heavy plastic. Yeah. <laughs> the air wouldn't come out of it fast enough to rocket it across the room. Ben christens the pool with an epic belly flop, and I was worried from his jump that he was just going to destroy this ancient diving board. Like, he's really going for it here. At the bottom of the pool, Ben finds a pair of glasses with a broken lens and surfaces to inspect them. Ben is entranced with the glasses and can't hear his own son talking to him. He's so confused, in fact, that when Davy threatens to jump in the water, Ben calls his son by his own name, Benji, instead of calling him Davy. Yeah, well, I'm coming out! Well, you don't, Benji, you might be a great ball player, but you float like a rock, got that? Yeah, well, I'm coming out anyhow. But they do that throughout the movie. I, I almost, do they? I almost wonder if his name is like Benjamin David or David Benjamin. Yeah, uh, because, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there was a couple of times that I was doing taking notes and I was like, wait, the son's name is Ben. No, the father's name is Ben, but they called him Ben. Yeah. And, and even like Aunt Elizabeth, when they fix the pump, she says, Benji, you're a technical genius. I think she's talking to her son, though. She's not talking to well, uh, her, her nephew. nephew. Yeah. She's talking to 
to Oliver Reed. But but she just but, told the kid to do to fix it. Yeah, and the but kid I, did fix it. And I th- but I think that she was teasing. Yeah, she's uh, making a joke nephew. like, "Oh, he's so smart. Look at look at your father fixed it." David jumps in the pool despite his father's warning, and suddenly Ben is wearing the glasses. He dunks his son a few times playfully, but things get rough quickly. Elizabeth is disturbed immediately and asks them to stop over and over. Suddenly, Ben is viciously thrashing his son in the water, never waiting for him to catch his breath and holding him under for long stretches. David fights back and Elizabeth screams at Ben as he catches his son in a tight headlock under the water. David is able to grab hold of his swimming goggles and just as he surfaces for a panic breath, he cracks the goggles across his father's face, turning his nose into a blood fountain. David kicks his way out of the water while his father shrinks away across the pool. This whole scene is horrifying. Yeah. It's really disturbing because it looks like he's actually drowning this actor. It really does look like that. And it's just, it just goes on and on and on and on. You're just like, I get it. Stop it, please. Yeah. All the while, Marion is upstairs absentmindedly fiddling with the photo collection. That night, a terrible storm blows over the house and Ben tosses and turns in the grips of a nightmare. He sees a family coming out of a cemetery for a funeral and a man leads child Ben to a black car and then smiles through a window at him. I think it's probably Ben's parents' funeral, but he keeps turning away from the burial to see the smiling chauffeur until he wakes up. Marion finds him staring out the window between 2 and 3 a.m. He prepares to smoke and she advises against it when he lashes out at her. She tells him that what happened today was an accident and that David is okay. Ben is obviously tortured by what he almost did to his son and can't understand how it even happened. Ben, I know you. So I know you didn't mean to do that. The hell I did, Marion. I wanted to hurt him. Do you understand that? I wanted to hurt him. You're punishing yourself. He seems to worry he's losing his mind and confirms here that the dream was of his mother's funeral. Marion assures him that he's not going crazy and it was simply an accident. But that's bonkers. Like... If somebody told you after a violent incident with their child, I wanted to hurt them, yeah. would you be like, no, you didn't. You you're, you didn't do that on purpose. And you're even like, if no, it was I an did. accident, it's like, okay, how are we going to prevent this accident from happening again where you actually want to kill our son? Yeah. I know. Let's go to the doctor. That's what we do. We go to the doctor right now. The next day, walking around the property, Marion heads out to the pool and finds it polished clean like it was just installed today. She has to mention the change out loud because I don't think I would have noticed it otherwise. It's a very subtle improvement. Next, she surprises Ben with a home office complete with typewriter. Obviously, this is more of what Stephen King recycled into his novel, The Shining. Ben is still upset about what happened in the pool yesterday, but Marion says it's time to forget about it and move forward. Aunt Elizabeth brings Davy by the office to announce that they're heading out to do some painting. Things are obviously uncomfortable between David and his father until Ben offers him a handshake and David takes a hug. Oh, Dad. I never want to go back to that pool. No, you went after Davy. That night, Ben is sitting in a chair beside the pool when he's approached by Marion. He points out how much the pool has been improved and she seems to take credit for the improvements. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Seems to be all... Smell the lemon oil? Pluck the weeds and polish the chrome? I scrub the concrete? After a quick embrace, Marion and Ben are skinny dipping in the pool. He starts kissing her aggressively in the water, but she shoves him away and retreats back to the house. We learn on the way there that they haven't had sex since David was conceived 13 years ago. I can't work out what's... 
What's made me so repulsive all of a sudden? Repulsive? You're incredibly sexy. They're making out more in the yard, but when Marion locks eyes with a red light in the attic window, she pulls herself away from him again. He is slow to surrender, but eventually releases her back to the house. She heads up to Mrs. Allardyce's sitting room and opens the music box to hear its tune. She sits down in the chair outside the old woman's bedroom, naked in a bathrobe, and falls asleep. This would obviously be super awkward for Mrs. Allardyce to stumble upon in search of a meal to ignore. <laughs> the next morning, Marion finds Ben at the breakfast table, and when he asks where she spent the night, she admits to passing out in Allardyce's wing chair. He leaves in a huff to trim the drive. Next, we see him shirtless with a machete, hacking away at the plants along the path. Aunt Elizabeth finally shows up to the breakfast table around noon, and Mary asks how she slept in so long. Elizabeth notices in a mirror that her hair is getting grayer, and she mentions that Marion's is too. Marion thinks she takes after her own Aunt Mary, who was fully gray at 33. She mentions that David wanted to go for a hike with Aunt Elizabeth, but Elizabeth just wants to go back to bed, and Marion suggests she do just that. Elizabeth climbs into her bed, but then fights off the overwhelming urge to sleep. No. Damn it, I won't. Elizabeth looks over the paintings she's done here and collects her painting of the house to share with Mrs. Allardyce upstairs. I'm surprised it's taken her this long to try to speak with the only woman in the house anywhere near her age. When she knocks on the door, it is answered very quickly by Marion, who urges her away because Allardyce is napping. This, this was the first big real surprise for me. That, that she was in the room? That she was already in the room. We never kind of had a, a scene where where the door unlocks or to give us any kind of an impression that there is or is not somebody in that room. Yeah. I mean, we still don't know if there is or is not anybody in that room. But right. now we know that, that she, she knows. knows. Yeah. Well, she's not in the bedroom, though. She's in the sitting room. No, she's no I think she's, she's in, in the, the bedroom. bedroom, bedroom. I, I think she that is the actual bedroom. Oh, I thought she was knocking on the door to the sitting room, which is on the hallway. I don't think anyone goes into the bedroom until the very end of the film. That's possible. I was mistaken which door it was. It is kind of a close-up shot. Yeah. Marion closes the door in Elizabeth's face, and we cut back to Ben swinging his machete wildly and then enjoying an ice-cold Coors on the lawn. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Coors in a movie? Uh, are we just going to keep referencing student bodies? Yes, for the rest of your life, no. Richard. Student bodies! Student bodies! Technically, Coors was actually not available for sale on the East Coast, which is part of the premise of the first Smokey and the Bandit movie. So this is actually a, a mistake that he has Coors here. A sudden look of terror overtakes his face when he notices a car rattling up to the house and the same creepy smiling chauffeur from his dream is behind the wheel. He's literally shaking with fright as the car pulls to a stop and the driver sends another pale, creepy smile in his direction. In the driver's reflective sunglasses, we can see a film camera positioned in the lawn recording him. Ben's horrified shivering has drenched his hands in beer and in a blink, the car vanishes and the score stops dead. That night, the camera slowly creeps up on a grandfather clock as the minute hand snaps 20 minutes forward to 12 a.m. and all the clocks strike midnight simultaneously, starting from various mismatched times. All with strings attached yeah. to them. <laughs> Almost all of them have surprisingly visible strings yanking the minute hand into place. Ben is awoken by the sound and steps out into the hall to observe a clock up close when he smells something suspicious. He starts pounding on the door to David's room and eventually has to bust it in with his shoulder. 
Inside, we can see a furnace hissing beside David in bed as gas is leaking into the room. Ben carries him down the hall to their room and then holds him out the window to get him fresh air. I, I have an issue with this scene per what I feel is going on. Okay. Uh, and again, not wanting to try to get into spoilers. Okay. Um, I don't understand why this happens. It seems like they, the, 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 uh, do I just going to say the forces at work here yeah. want to to keep them alive as long as possible? Oh, I don't right? think so at all. I no? think they're out to kill them as quickly as they can. Yeah, I don't think they have they have any vested interest in these people surviving for any. Oh, see, time. I thought I thought it was slowly feeding on them. No, I think I think it's slowly gaining the strength to kill them. Uh, yeah, ah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think that these small things that they're able to do would increase the power to be able to then kill them outright yeah but we'll come back to this he hands david off to marion and returns to david's room to locate the source of the leak when he can't open a window he bashes the glass pane out with a baseball bat as they argue over how this could have happened elizabeth puts on a very suspicious face the next morning marion is working in the greenhouse when aunt elizabeth needlessly confesses to some things I want you to know I didn't touch that heater. Well, of course you didn't, dear. If I did, I'd remember. Nobody said you did. I I just covered him, that's all. You covered him? You mean you were in David's room last night? Yes, I I looked in on him. Sometimes I don't sleep. Marion's tone gets very curt, and Elizabeth is quickly flustered. Marion mentions how the door was locked and the windows were closed as Elizabeth tries and fails to convincingly deny the accusation. Well, I, I, I didn't lock it. The, the only thing I touched was the blanket. That's, uh, well, that's what I remember doing. All right. You didn't lock it. It locked itself. Elizabeth denies all charges, claiming Benji will believe her. I believe you too. No, you don't. It's obvious. We all forget things, Elizabeth. And uh, at your age. I don't forget things. I know what I do. As a last-ditch Hail Mary excuse, Elizabeth tries to pin the attempted murder on Mrs. Allardyce, the reclusive woman who no one in the house has ever seen. This is the last straw for Marion, who shouts her into silence. Marion then retires to her room. Later, Ben finds his aunt crying in bed. She denies all of Marion's accusations again and assures Ben that she would die if anything happened to Davy. She mentions here for the first time that the house is responsible and they should leave. Ben begs Elizabeth to join them for drinks downstairs and give Marion the chance to apologize. Ben confronts Marion in Allardyce's sitting room and tries to communicate how hurt Elizabeth is by what she said. Marion corrects Elizabeth's claims by pointing out that she doesn't think Elizabeth is lying. She thinks that she is confused, and I actually think that she made that point pretty clearly, but that Elizabeth took it very personally. Ben wants to meet Allardyce while he's here, but Marion says she's asleep again. He looks at all the same creepy photos and the music box, but Marion urges him out of the room. They have a short argument about keys. He seems suspicious that she has a key to the room, and she says that it was in the envelope taped to the door when they got here. But then Ben asks if she also has keys to all the clocks, which seem to have been magically fixed at the same time last night, or if she winds them all herself. 
Changing the subject, Marion apologizes for how she acted in the pool, but he's not buying it. Moments later, Marion is coming around a corner when she finds David holding a big crystal bowl, and then she shouts at him unexpectedly, so he drops it, surprised. <laughs> it explodes into a thousand pieces on the floor. She grabs him by the shoulders and shakes him violently, screaming in his face. Baby, be- oh! Look what you- Oh, man! Look what you do! And don't you ever touch your thing! I didn't mean to do it! Don't you ever touch your beautiful thing! He runs away, and she sits down, collecting the pieces from the floor one at a time. Ben catches the tail end of her shouting at David, and then steps out of the room to leave her alone. But does I, it matter? No, but she's connecting to this house. Right, but it's just going to get fixed. Will it? She doesn't know that. But I, I think she does know that. I don't does know it? That she does. Will it just get fixed magically, or is this house showing her things that exist, and when they get broken, they're broken forever? Like plants can come back to life, but bulls mm-hmm. don't just magically come back. Or together. light bulbs this get fixed. This isn't earthbound. No, I do think that things are regenerating, though. Yeah, because because all the all the wood yeah. on the walls. And stuff. I think they just built a couple layers on this house. <laughs> we'll come back to that. No, I think this would be. By the way, like this scene, the pool scene, like an incredibly traumatic movie for this child to film. Right. Yeah. yeah. It seems horrifying to do these scenes with them. Just people yeah. yelling at you. And, and yeah. holding and, you underwater. And of all people, <laughs> Karen Black and Oliver Reed yelling at you seems horrifying to me. Like it, it could only be worse if he had a scene where Betty Davis was screaming in his face. <laughs> <laughs> now pretend he's Joan Crawford. <laughs> Up in Elizabeth's room, she is sweating profusely in bed. She sits up and her eyes trace something around the room before she collapses backward on her pillows in pain. That night, Ben asks Marion why she was so weird about the crystal bowl. He reminds her that the furniture here is not theirs and she doesn't need to take things so intensely personally if they're accidentally broken. For some reason, she doesn't remind him that he almost drowned their son for literally no reason yesterday. Like, hey, guess what? We're doing weird things now. That's why I did it. (laughs) Ben finally asks her the million-dollar question. What would you say if I asked for us to leave right now? She finds the proposal ludicrous. No, they're supposedly near the end of their vacation anyway. He offers her some depressing hypotheticals. What if I hadn't reached avian time? What has that got to do with this house? Or with leaving? She's able to parse his question into an accusation that the house is somehow responsible for everything that's gone wrong here, and he asks again if she would choose the house over him or vice versa. Before she has to answer, David is screaming frantically from inside about Aunt Elizabeth. She's moaning incoherently. Ben asks Marion to lead David out of the room and then to wait with Elizabeth while he phones the hospital. Unfortunately, the line is busy, so Marion suggests he keep trying it. Ben specifies that it's not a doctor problem or a hospital problem, but a house problem because every number he tried, including the operator, gave him a busy signal. This is when you carry her to the car and take her to a doctor. Marion doesn't believe him and offers to try the phone herself. She claims to have gotten through and that a doctor is on the way. We cut to Marion back upstairs tidying the sitting room and eventually sitting down in the wing chair again to help herself to the meal that she prepared for Mrs. Allardyce. The camera pushes into her face under the music box chiming, and then we cut back down to Elizabeth's room, where Ben appears haunted by the sound of the arriving doctor's car. When he peeks out the window at it, he sees the hearse from his mother's funeral, and Elizabeth, hanging on to life by a thread now, acknowledges his reaction. Everyone sweats profusely. 
Ben crumbles in the corner with his face in his hands, and Aunt Elizabeth writhes in bed. They're both terrified by the sounds of someone struggling with the door to the room. The chauffeur kicks the door in under a very campy sting and the score. Ben and Elizabeth seem to both be reacting to the same hallucination as the chauffeur rolls a big coffin through the room directly into camera and we dip to black. Well, I almost wonder if she's seeing something equally horrifying or if she's seeing... From her childhood nightmares? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the doctor didn't come, right? I don't know if this was actually the doctor arriving and they both misunderstood what was happening in their hallucinations. Okay. It's, it's unclear if a doctor ever showed up. Yeah. Or if Marion ever got a hold of one even. Sure. Sometime later, Marion is psychically lured into the greenhouse again and flicks on the lights to find the entire stockpile of flowers blooming. There doesn't even seem to be a room to walk around anymore. We dissolve from that to Elizabeth's funeral, where Ben and David are in mourning, but Marion is nowhere to be found. I'm assuming this is why Elizabeth was an aunt and not Ben's mother in the story, because it seems vaguely acceptable that she might miss an aunt-in-law's funeral. Ben busts into the dining room later, as Marion lights candelabras for dinner. He's obviously upset that she would skip the funeral to care for this stranger upstairs. He accuses her of caring more about the house in particular than anyone staying in it. At this point, too, she's in rather strange outfit yeah Yeah. she's starting to wear more and more of mrs allardyce's clothes from the sitting room yeah i mean it started with just like a shawl and a necklace but now it's now it's become this elaborate i don't even know what it is dress or house coat thing yeah there's a robe and she's doing her hair up different she's got like a choker on yeah Yeah. you know i couldn't leave mrs allardyce alone Davy enters drinking soda out of a bottle because evidently there are no glasses in the house, and Marion demands he pour his drink into a goblet so as to not ruin the nice mahogany table. It's better than glass. It's silver. But I don't want a goblet. I I want a glass. You heard what your mother said, Davy. First of all, even as a kid, I would have drinking literally every beverage out of a goblet. Yeah. (laughs) Given the option, yes. (laughs) And secondly, if my mom gave me a bottle of soda and an upside down traffic cone, I would still have drunk it as fast as I could before it all dribbled out of the bottom. I don't care what I'm drinking things out of. (laughs) Also, the bottle is glass. (laughs) Well, the mother's point is that she doesn't want him to keep it in it because it's going to ruin the table. He likes glass. He's pro-glass. For some reason, Ben agrees with Marion on this point, but refuses to partake in the meal. And she claims he has ruined her appetite too. So it's up to Davy to eat everything now. I wonder if she remembered not to cook enough food for, yeah. for Aunt Elizabeth. Marion heads upstairs and Ben follows, demanding to see the old lady. Marion screams at him to leave her alone and gets between him and the locked bedroom door. She claims that Mrs. Allardyce has the only key to this final door keeping him out. And Ben informs her that they are leaving now. Well, how can we? We just pack up and go. That is how. She reminds him yet again that the old woman relies on her alone, ignoring that she won't let anyone else help. He tells her that her obsession with the house is ruining their lives, but she claims that the house is all they've ever wanted. But then she gets lost in a thought. This house is everything. Everything we have always wanted. And it's ours for as long as, as. Ben says they leave tomorrow. She's bought herself another day. 
Later that night, we see David sleeping and Ben has fallen asleep reading to him. He wakes in the chair and notices through a rain-soaked window that something seems to be falling off of the house. Shingles and wood are just falling past the window and the house creaks and crunches. When he gets closer to the window, we can see the roof is shedding shingles, revealing a pristine layer underneath. The siding is also buckling off the house and clean boards appear from underneath to replace it. I love this shot. It's amazing. Yeah. The house is molting. Yeah, but the specifically the siding, how it bows out and then pops out of the frame, right. it just looks so great. Oh, I yeah. don't know how they did this practical effect. I don't know how they did any of this. The shingles popping off look great. The, the bowing, popping siding, it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. He wakes his son and scares the hell out of him with a lot of seemingly nonsense talk. What? Somehow the house is... Boards, some of the boards and tiles. Huh? The, the, shh, shh. They are being replaced by new ones. Now don't ask me why. Just get out of here, all right? Dad, wait a minute. Get out. Dad. Just take him to the window. Show him what you saw to yeah. seem less crazy. Yeah. He rushes David out the door in the rain to the car, and Marion awakens in the upstairs sitting room and spots them running across the yard. She screams to them to stop, but it's no use. See, this is the problem with having the, the carriage house so far away from the house. Yeah. Is that when it's raining, you have to run for a half mile to get to it. Oh, your chauffeur would bring it up to the front. Does he just live in the carriage house? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's right. That's how that works. That checks out. Maybe that's why he's so angry, this <laughs> guy from the past. Ben throws his son into the station wagon and skids off down the driveway. Marion comes out of the house screaming to them as the car flies by, and all the while David is convinced his dad is having another mental break, even slapping at his father as he drives. Before they can make it onto the road, a giant tree tips over in the storm to block the path, and Ben makes a futile effort to drag it out of the way with his hands. He's quickly losing the fight with the tree, and full-size branches are swatting at him and wrapping him up. <laughs> I was going to make a weird reference, and maybe you'll edit this out, but I was going to say... Do you remember the next time a family is fleeing from a haunted house with Betty Davis? <laughs> I don't. It'll be Watcher in the Woods. Oh, okay. Later this season. I've never seen that. During the fight with the trees, David is hammering on the car horn, screaming for his father to come back. Ben gets back behind the wheel and proceeds to ram the tree repeatedly as David begs, sobbing for him to stop. With the third slam, Ben has clearly given up and nearly passes out at the wheel. Marion arrives on foot, looking a bit like Agatha Harkness now, <laughs> from her slow transformation over the course of the film. She opens the driver's side door and slips into the car, and Ben sort of passively makes room for her as he comes to a devastating conclusion. You are accepting this because you, you are part of it. She backs the car up to the house, and the grill looks surprisingly good for a car that just hit a tree four times. Ben's nose starts bleeding again, and he shivers in fear. David asks what's wrong, and then in Ben's POV, we see that Marion has been replaced in the driver's seat by the spooky chauffeur. Amazingly, they were able to get a doctor to the house to check on him near immediately. Marion asks if he'll be okay, and the man points her to the hallway to speak in private. I, w I would have loved a shot after they pull away of the, just the tree going... Like, <laughs> it just props itself put, back up? Putting itself back up. That's awesome. So... I know that he's upset with her, obviously, because he's recognizing that she's participating mm -hmm. in this problem. But does he not 
understand and recognize and see that he has as well like how is apparently it, not he's blaming her but not seeing it happen to himself what but he remembers attacking his son yeah and being out of control for it right yeah. so isn't that him equally at fault in in being part of it i would think so yes the doctor recommends ben sleep here for the night and then check into a city hospital in the morning Marion is obviously not excited about leaving the house and clearly decides to herself that she will make do here without medical intervention. David is clearly worried about his father and Marion assures him that he's better off here than at home. Sometime later, Ben has been propped up in a wheelchair beside the pool, practically comatose, and Marion tells David to get out of the water so she can prepare lunch since she doesn't trust him to not wander into the deep end. In the kitchen, Marion packs a picnic basket while outside, David offers to show his father his swimming prowess. You, you want to see me go in the deep end? I, I can swim down there now, you know. Is this the house operating the kid now, making him do things against his will, or is this kid just an asshole desperate to disregard I, his mom's warning? I think the latter. It's quickly clear that David has no idea how to swim, and he struggles in the water for a bit. Marion spots him from a window, working his way toward the deep end, and reminds him to keep out of it. It's clear to Ben already that his son is drowning in front of him and his face reddens as he struggles to do anything about it, fighting against his catatonic state. It's not just the lack of swimming ability either. Giant waves are suddenly splashing back and forth across the pool around him. Ben can only watch and Marion comes running to his rescue but doors keep slamming shut in front of her. She runs the long way through the house to get to him and comes to a locked front door. Ben has summoned the strength to tip his wheelchair forward and crawls toward his drowning son with every ounce of strength. Finally fighting back against the house, Marion puts a small bronze statue through a window to get outside, and then dives into the pool to pull her son from the water as Ben screams from the sidelines. He appears greatly relieved when Marion surfaces with Davy under her arm, although she's holding him, like still plunging his face under the water. Yeah. Ben assures her in fragmented words that he couldn't move, as she seems convinced finally that the house is to blame. We are leaving this place today. Hours later, the car is packed out front, and they prepare to leave when Marion makes an unfortunate but wholly predictable announcement. She must first let Mrs. Allardyce know that they are leaving. Ben and David seem in agreement that Mrs. Allardyce should die alone in the attic. <laughs> ben watches her enter the house nervously. Along the way to Allardyce's room, Marion is still making minor adjustments to the place tipping things this way and that to try and balance out the framed stuff on the walls. She knocks on the door, and meanwhile back at the car, Ben's patience is running out, and he exits the car. He mashes the car horn a few times to summon her, but to no avail. He gives David a knowing look and confesses he has to go inside to find her. Reluctantly, he ascends the stairs to Allardyce's room, all the while calling for Marion and getting no response. The sitting room is empty, and he assumes his wife must be in the bedroom with Allardyce. The door is unlocked now, and he takes a deep breath before entering. He sees Mrs. Allardyce in a wheelchair across the room facing the window, and knocks on the open door to get her attention. I'm sorry I don't wish to disturb you, but I was looking for Marion. She said she was going to come up here and tell you that, that we were leaving. He takes a few more steps toward her, demanding answers before angrily wrenching the wheelchair around. For a moment we see only his shocked face, and then finally the face of Allardyce, which is actually Marion with fully gray hair and foggy blue contact lenses with a horrific glare. The score goes haywire and Ben fucking loses it. Will you answer me? 
I've been waiting for you, Ben. Suddenly, we see Ben rocketed through the front window of the attic, and he lands headfirst through the windshield of the waiting car, splashing his son with his brains. Oh my god. I, I did not expect this yeah. at all. Yeah, and there's like chunks oh, yeah. that, that was, get all over the kid. Oh my god. That was not, you know, like, I'm like, yeah, you threw him through the window. We're not going to see that. Yeah. The kid is covered in blood. And the, and the worst so far that this film has shown us is like people like almost drowning in a pool. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly to have this brutally smashed open head. Ugh. David runs screaming from the car and as he moves around the house we see an old brick chimney tumbling to pieces and then tip on one side pulverizing the panicking child as we dip to black. So everyone except for Mrs. Allardyce slash Marion seems to have been yeah. killed. Yes. We come back up from black, and now the yard of the house is as crowded with flowers as the greenhouse once was. Roz and Arnold Allardyce narrate the shot, unseen, complimenting the property's restored beauty. Weirdly, on the sound of a shutter click, most of the flowers disappear, but we get another lovely photograph of the house and slowly back away to show it added to the collage of old photos on the wall. And our mother, she's back. Our darling, restored to us in all her beauty, her glory, with us once again. We hear the music box play, and the camera floats along the photo collection in Allardyce's sitting room, and ends with three new photos, Davy, Ben, and Elizabeth. And we fade to black as the credits roll. The the photo of Ben looks very odd. Yeah, I expected it to start moving. Like it, I it, thought that some of them were moving earlier when they were showing them. It, it, it was really weird. It, it, I don't know if it was just the weird blue background, but yeah. it, it looked like it was a, a like a live, like, like a, a video. Composite with yeah, a, like a picture. video still composited over. Is like, is he gonna like 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 start like hitting like the the frame of the glass or That'd something? That'd be interesting. Like that? Yeah. So I have questions. Yeah, so many questions. <laughs> Why don't I talk about some of the changes from the book first? Okay. And then we'll go into the questions. In the novel, we establish that he is a teacher and she is a housewife cooped up in a tiny queen's apartment longing for room to breathe. And the film originally started with some of that. Yeah. Them in New York in a very small apartment to explain why she would be so eager to stay at this house. Right. Marion's disinterest in sex begins on the vacation. This isn't a 13-year dry spell. I don't know that I took that from that statement. Uh, I, I feel like uh, you might have misinterpreted his line. Oh, maybe. Marion also never takes credit for the self-improvements of the house in the book. She's just as confused about it as everybody else hmm. is. The funeral that Ben recalls from his childhood was not his mother's, but a neighbor's, and he isn't haunted by a chauffeur, but just the hearse itself. He is struck by the hearse from his dream while he's hacking at the plants on the driveway, and he wakes up hours later. In the book, Elizabeth's photo is added to the collection immediately after her funeral. So we kind of ahead of time get the impression that the house is killing people and yeah. uses the photos to show us 
whose energies they've collected. David never fully forgives Ben for the near-drowning incident. And then this is where the book and the film veer drastically apart. When David is drowning in the pool by himself, not when his father is doing it, Ben struggles to walk and tips the wheelchair forward and cracks his head on the pavement and bleeds to death. Whoa. So he doesn't even get, he doesn't survive that scene. He, he bleeds to death thinking his son is drowning in the pool. And instead of busting open a window to save her son, Marion never finds a way out of the house and is forced to watch him drown. Ugh. At which point her husband and son's portraits are magically added to the sitting room collection and her hair is already fully white. She busts her way into Allardyce's bedroom to explain she has nothing left to give the house and finds Allardyce sitting across the room in shadow. She grabs the chair, and it's unclear exactly what happens here, but it seems like Allardyce takes the last of her life force away, and then the siblings, like the end of the movie, return to the house and compliment what she's done with the place. So for the most part, the film follows the book very closely. Yeah. The only thing that's different is the father and son don't die at, in during the pool scene they get this light last climactic moment where we yeah. surprise us with the allardyce as karen black well i really well first of all i really like the we're going to leave we've all managed to get into the car we're yeah. ready to go like that that yeah. is very satisfying because you're like good you're not crazy and yeah. then you're like oh she got pulled back in by yep. the force of the house so like i liked all that that's great I am unclear if there was ever anyone in her room. Do we think it was empty the entire time? Well, there's a couple suspicions. Um, if you look at The Shining and the way people talk about The Shining, the last photograph in The Shining we see, and again, there's so much of The Shining in this. Yeah. But we end with this photograph from hundreds of years ago or almost exactly 100 years ago this year. And Jack Nicholson was there at the beginning. He's been there the whole time. And people keep saying, oh, you were always here. You've, you've been here the whole time. Yeah. So it's a, it's a possibility that Karen Black ha- has so been she, Mrs. Allardyce the whole time. And she was drawn to this house because she was always meant to come right. back to the yeah. house. And okay. she's supposed to venture out to collect blood to sacrifice to the house. Hmm. But that I'm, then that I question why there are no new graves. Yeah. And, and because I can see why she would be invincible because she's doing this and sacrificing people for the sake of the house and herself. But then why are her children elderly? Like right. They're aging, but not so much that they die. Yeah, it is weird that no one has died since the 1800s. Well, but they're both old enough to be... No, but... Okay, so in theory, they they buried the ant. Yeah. So in theory, somewhere there's a grave for the ant. Um, there are no graves on the property anymore because no Allardyces have died since the 1800s. Right. right? The, but Which is what, why the two children are in their 70s. Right. But, uh, okay, I see what you're saying. They were born in, in the, the late 18... 1800s and now they're in And their... they're still that way. Yeah. So my assumption is that all the rest of those pictures are... Prior to the 1800s. Prior to the or, 1800s. Or prior to the 1900s. Or maybe there, there are other Allardyces that had died, and they'd only figured out exactly what was happening or the, in the, the 1800s. I get the impression none of those people are Allardyces. That all those people are strangers that they rented the house to to sacrifice them. 
but they look they look like really old timey photos. If they figured out by the 1800s that you could sacrifice people to save the house, and no more of their family died after that point because they figured out what they could do. Yeah, I I do think it's weird that the gravestones lead up to 1800 because for there to be this many faces that were sacrificed to the house, then yeah. the house should be much older and the and the headstones should be much older. Because, yeah, because he, he gives a specific date of of what the last headstone. He, he says he doesn't see anything from the 1900s. He yeah. says but the, if those are, my I assume that nobody, none of the people that you bring in from the outside get buried. The only people that are buried are Allardyces, and the Allardyces stopped dying in the late 1800s because they figured out how to live forever off of people. They, I assume they're rejuvenated with so the house. In, so everyone on that table died in the last 76 years? No, I'm saying no, it's weird hundreds. because they're, I, they're either old pictures of Allardyces that have nothing to do with the house rejuvenating itself, and they're yeah. just their family members, which doesn't really help with the plot at all i think yeah. it's supposed to imply that these people died for the house yeah you would hope that this is a collection of the victims of the house right. yeah that's that's the assumption but the house doesn't seem old enough i mean it's definitely not old enough to have claimed all these lives it just doesn't it just doesn't line up with this concept of the graves i just yeah. don't get it yeah it, 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 what i took away was that the siblings much like their mother are being either rejuvenated or resurrected in some kind of way. Right, yes. But then how? Like, it, why do they have to leave? The, they, they should have been discovered to still be on the property somewhere hiding. Or because, sure. Because otherwise I don't feel like they could get the the effects of the house rejuvenating. Right. That makes sense. In this twisted Encanto tale <laughs> of the living house. I think it's just a much better version of Monster House. Well, you know what's funny <laughs> is that as much as it has in common with uh, The Shining, I also feel like it reminded me in places of House of Dark Shadows from the same director Yeah, where you have these sort of like invincible people living in this house, but also like that movie starts with him coming to the house and deciding that he's going to start remodeling it mm-hmm. and fixing it up. And so over the course of the entire film, the the house is constantly mm. being improved on yeah. and looking nicer and nicer by the end and also they both deal with mystical music boxes that hypnotize people but so aside from this one and monster house are there other movies where a house is is the killer is, is the killer is, is the well not just the killer because there's like is that house right it's that movie has yeah is, is, is like that right yeah are you talking about the william cat house yes the comedy one or you're talking about the Japanese? No, I think I'm talking about that one, the horror movie. I've never seen that one. Okay, I don't recall. Um, well, uh, well, I can't say specifically a house. I can say 1408 is specifically about an evil room. Mm. The room itself is the thing that's that's that. There's no ghost or spirit haunting the room. The room itself is this force. Yeah. But obviously, the Overlook Hotel is a similar force, and the haunting is a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I feel like okay, so do we think though that Mrs. Allardyce, like the mom, is controlling the house embodiment or of like like her spirit is the house. Like is she the house? Like like in I, I do in think Monster House where I, the where the, the 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 spirit is tied to the house and it's attacking people because it's Yes. It needs to. I think the reason that we have so many pictures of the house downstairs is because that is the evil. 
the house is the thing doing this, not a person that resides within it. But see, and I, and I thought by the ending that they took a picture every time that it rejuvenated. Yeah, it I rejuvenates. think they do. Yeah, but, but but they said one of the pictures is fairly recent. Uh, yeah, and so I was like, okay, so this is this they may, they must have done this within the last ten ten years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, how often are they? He says the oldest picture looks like it's about a hundred years old. Yeah. Hmm. So it seems like they do it once a lifetime. I don't know. There was like twenty pictures on this wall, which would mean they do it every like five years. If the eighteen hundred thing matters. Right. Yeah. Not sure that the gravestones are relevant. That's true. It could be further back than that. I don't know. But yeah, I uh, I love the effects. They're all like practical and they with the exception of the strings pulling the (laughs) mini hands i feel like all of it sells really well um it does have an air of creepiness to it obviously there's a couple key moments when the chauffeur kicks in the door and pushes the coffin across the room and the allardyce reveal at the end are both like epic moments that really like blow your mind and then obviously the literal mind blow of his head getting bashed open on the yeah car. oh my god um i i would i guess like nitpicky uh the only thing i would have liked to have seen is when the chimney falls on the yes, kid i agree um well i don't know i don't know if we're gonna go to the same point but show I, the chimney hit the ground and well, smash well, this kid <laughs> <laughs> well no i was i was hoping that as the chimney is like falling apart you would There's see a new one growing under you it would see yeah. the oh, new that would chimney be good. Right. i was hoping that, but you do see a clean pristine chimney at the end or, yes. or multiple chimneys on the house at the end that looked better than the one that fell on the kid right, right. so you see new ones they just you just don't see growing does up the house you. return to its original state every time or does it improve is was, it better than the last version every time i mean well clearly because they didn't have electricity in the in the time that it was built yeah so like now it would be like growing wi-fi <laughs> yeah, it's like rebuilding. Yeah, exactly. Like it would have like you know like freaking Ethernet jacks on yeah. the wall and stuff. Hmm. Like it'd be like a Howl's Moving Castle where yeah. they just reshape it every time they need it. Somehow it just knows what the new tech is. And what is Walker's involvement in all this? Does is Walker aware? Because he seems like he's an old timey caretaker, so he must have have been working on this house for a long time, and he must have seen it rejuvenate i don't know if he has because he seems flabbergasted by the plant growing back and it's like that's that's just a thing that happens walker yeah (laughs) that's (laughs) That's not even that's not even impressive yet uh but it seems like the the family has known him for a while yeah i feel like it only rejuvenates once a lifetime okay and so i feel like that would make the that's my take on it it's like they they basically have to do this you know you know once or or like when uh, when Marion would have naturally died herself, like mm-hmm. that's when they're gonna have to do this again. Yeah. So you know they just gained themselves another, you know, fifty years on yeah. this house. But they do go out of their way to not mention a first name for Allardyce in the attic all the time. Yeah. yeah. Which is why it's possible she was Marion the whole time. Um, and earlier when I was saying like I I thought the house was trying to keep them alive to feed on them. Like 
because that's why like the 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 ant and Marion were growing older mm-hmm. like it was like sucking their life energy and that's why they were so excited to have a child because that's where they're going to get the maximum yeah. amount of oh, life yeah. energy from this child but then they start trying to kill the kid right away it's like when do you But even when he kid? skinned his knee it like started bringing their plants yeah. back to life. Yeah. I mean a meal's a meal if uh, whether you eat it in small bites or the whole thing at once. I I don't think it mattered to the house. Yeah. I I I realize now that I still I uh from my next movie pick for our movie nights is I need to, I need to show you guys Oculus because th- there's a lot of themes. I feel Oculus borrowed from this movie. As oh, well, okay. Interesting. Uh, about the need to feed this, yeah. o- this object needs to feed on energy. Yeah. It's kind of like monsters Inc too. Or scream taking this energy from people and using it mm. as, as power. I, I feel like, okay. And I didn't, I didn't read the synopsis. I, I don't, I didn't know what this movie was about coming into it. But the second they get into the house and they see all those pictures, I'm like, oh, this house is going to feed on them and rejuvenate, right? Like, I knew, <laughs> I knew that from, like, the moment yeah. they walked in. <laughs> but it didn't matter. Like, I was still... That's true. Like, I mm-hmm. still loved every moment of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I can't get over the practical effects. And obviously, I love this cast. All, all oh, of these, yeah, yeah. The, the major characters are such huge names in their own right, and they play off each other really well, despite whatever, like, difficulties they had behind the scenes. Um, but I just, I really liked everything about it. I Honestly, I feel like the only thing that it, that it had working against it, and I love Dan Curtis, but I feel like maybe a better director and uh, a little bit better writing could have brought this up over the top. This, yeah, this would be as well remembered be, as The Shining. I was going to say, then it would be The Shining, yeah. and it would be mm. one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. <laughs> it was still really great. I give it like two giant thumbs up. This was yeah, same, nice. oh, yeah. I really For enjoyed sure. it. Yeah. I, uh, my only real criticism was just the weird soft focus, or not even soft focus. It was, it was just like there was something obscuring the lens. Yeah, it's just soap opera cinematography, and, and that's what he had done so much of already at that point in his career that I feel like they were, they were crutches for him a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, but there's still so much to love about this movie. And, uh, obviously he has really great horror sensibilities. Um, and so, and and also I love, just love Anthony James's face. (laughs) He's so (laughs) terrifying as this chauffeur character. It's like legitimately haunting. I feel like people in his real life must've just been scared of this guy. No offense. Well, I was going to ask about the title. Well, Burnt Offerings is just a sort of a, a biblical name for uh, a sacrifice being made to any sort of an entity. So in the case of this house, the burnt offerings are the people being sacrificed to the house. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I get that. But are but burnt offerings them- usually burnt? <laughs> they are usually burnt, but they're not always burnt. And Burnt Offerings is... Uh, in places just sort of a synonym for a sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, was the book the same title the book was the same title yeah here's a big thumbs up for me oh yeah this movie is great thumbs up yeah thumbs up for sure any movie where a kid gets crushed by a chimney i've, I've heard a- you say others? that <laughs> <laughs> i'm having trouble <laughs> filling out the genre in my head but <laughs> you have made that point before Our writer-director here was Dan Curtis. As I mentioned before, he's the creator of Dark Shadows, the series, and the director of the film adaptations, House of Dark Shadows, which we covered for Patreon, and Night of Dark Shadows, 
We've discussed in the past his miniseries War and Remembrance and Winds of War, both starring Robert Mitchum. He also directed a Night Stalker TV movie and a Night Strangler sequel, as well as a horror anthology TV movie called Trilogy of Terror. The novel here was written by Robert Morosco. He wrote Child's Play, but not that Child's Play. It was a Broadway play, which Morosco then adapted himself into the 1972 film directed by Sidney Lumet, starring James Mason, Robert Preston, and Bo Bridges. The other writer who did the adaptation, William F. Nolan, wrote Logan's Run and an episode of the subsequent series. He also has a writing credit on the upcoming Logan's Run reboot. He wrote two of the three Trilogy of Terror segments, the third came from Richard Matheson, who has credits so far on Somewhere in Time, Incredible Shrinking Woman, and Omega Man for the podcast. The music here came from Bob Cobbert, Cobert, probably, credited as Robert Cobbert, <laughs> Cobert, probably. Robert He's, Cobert? Robert Cobert. <laughs> he scored Dark Shadows and the Mitchum miniseries for Dan Curtis. He also scored a terrific 1977 thriller called Scalpel, which I just saw for the first time recently, and it's fucking crazy. I have to show it to you guys. He also wrote the theme song for the $10,000 Pyramid and later the $25,000 and $100,000 Pyramid retoolings. He's the credited composer of a segment of the Trilogy of Terror on account of recycled scores that he wrote for Dan Curtis's Night Stalker and Night Strangler TV movies. The cinematographer here was Jacques R. Marquette, and he's the guy that Richard has a problem with. Uh, he has mostly television DP work on shows like Sea Hunt, Maverick, McHale's Navy, The Munsters, and Greatest American Hero. He also lit book two of the North and South miniseries, and he DP'd Fuzz, which is currently in contention for our next monthly Patreon review. The editor here was Dennis Verkler. After this, he cut The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. We've seen his work in Xanadu, and he's back later this season cutting Continental Divide and Sharky's Machine. After, he cuts Airplane 2, Hunt for Red October, Free Jack, Under Siege, The Fugitive, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Daredevil, Chronicles of Riddick, The Fog Remake, and the Joe Johnston Wolfman Remake. Karen Black was Marion Rolfe. She's an easy writer, five easy pieces, for which she got her Oscar nomination and which we covered last year. She's in Day of the Locust, Family Plot, the last Hitchcock film, and Capricorn One. She plays different characters in all three segments of Dan Curtis's Trilogy of Terror. She also plays herself in Altman's The Player. She was four months pregnant during the production of this film. And she sort of reprised the role of Mrs. Allardyce by playing a similar character with the same name in 2013's Ooga Booga. She's the old lady that lives in the attic and her name is Mrs. Allardyce. So maybe it's an unofficial sequel to this. Oliver Reed played Ben Rolfe. How old would you guess Oliver Reed is in this movie? Jess? Uh, 45. Richard? I'm going to say 55. He was 38 when it Ooh. came out. And 37 when they shot it. He's younger than me in this movie. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. He appeared earlier this season in the dual role of Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. We've also seen him in Lion of the Desert and Condor Man. He was in The Devils, which lost our Patreon poll for that month. The Who's Tommy, and I always think of the 1968 Oliver, which played on loop in our house growing up. But I've explained on this show before that my favorite from him has to be Vulcan from Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yeah. He's also in The Brood, Gore, and The Pit and the Pendulum. Burgess Meredith played Arnold Allardyce. He was Mickey in the Rocky films, Penguin on the 60s Batman, and we've seen him so far in When Time Ran Out and Clash of the Titans. He's back later this season in True Confessions. 
He also narrates the Twilight Zone movie, and he got Oscar nominations for Rocky and Day of the Locust, in which he appears alongside Karen Black. Eileen Heckart played Roz Allardyce. She was Mrs. Hortense Daigle in The Bad Seed, for which she got an Oscar nomination, and she's Mrs. Baker in Butterflies Are Free, where she won the Oscar, which is currently in contention for our July 1972 review. She was one of the titular Mrs. Buchanans on The Five Mrs. Buchanans, and she was Ellen DeGeneres' grandmother on her sitcom Ellen. Lee Montgomery played David Rolfe. He's credited here as Lee H. Montgomery. Before this, he'd appeared in Million Dollar Duck and Willard's sequel, Ben. He later shows up as the love interest in Girls Just Want to Have Fun, opposite Sarah Jessica Parker. Justin Aylett, who requested this episode, once had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Montgomery and congratulated him for appearing alongside both Susan Onspach and Olivia Dabo in 1987's Into the Fire. Dub Taylor played Walker. He has a very long career, starting as Ed Carmichael in Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You in 1938. He's in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The 54, A Star is Born, Them. On the show so far, we've seen him in Used Cars, and we'll see him next in Soggy Bottom USA and Cannonball Run 2. In 1981, Taylor may have been best known for his appearance in the Hubba Bubba Bubblegum ad campaign. He was also a mainstay of the Western genre and as such was invited to appear alongside Pat Buttram and Harry Carey Jr. in the Western Town from Back to the Future 3. We've seen his son Buck Taylor this season as Gatlin in The Legend of the Lone Ranger and Dynamite Dick in Catalani and Little Britches. Betty Davis played Aunt Elizabeth. In keeping with her reputation, Davis was reportedly quite difficult on the set, clashing repeatedly with Karen Black and Oliver Reed. She's maybe one of the greatest actresses of all time, awarded two Oscars for Best Actress out of 11 nominations, all for Lead Actress. 11 nominations for Best Actress. She won for Dangerous and Jezebel in 36 and 39, and she was nominated for Of Human Bondage, Dark Victory, The Letter, The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, Mr. Skeffington, the star, and perhaps her best-known works, All About Eve and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And she was portrayed by Susan Sarandon on Feud Betty and Joan, opposite Jessica Lange as Joan Crawford. Anthony James played the chauffeur. He's half of the gay couple carjackers in Vanishing Point last year. He's also Ralph in In the Heat of the Night and Hector Savage in Naked Gun Two and a Half. He's also reunited with Betty Davis two years later in Return from Witch Mountain. Garrett Cassell played Rocker, uncredited. Who is that? Who is a rocker in this? Maybe there was cut footage? I don't know. It's uncredited. I don't remember a single other person in here. Yeah. Either way, uh, his credits might be completely made up in that case, but he was Dawn in Microwave Massacre, Innkeeper in Madman, and Ralph in Chud 2. Those are all the credits I have for this film. I think that's everything for Burnt Offerings. Thanks again to Justin Aylett for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title that you'd like to have us review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever the hell you tell us to. We leave you now with a trailer for Burnt Offerings. It all began as a summer vacation. A young family found a beautiful old house. It had secluded, spacious grounds, a large swimming pool, magnificent furnishings. So you are the people who want to rent this house. What do you mean it's $900? 
and then it's all ours. Well, there is one other thing. It's hardly a catch. They thought it was the answer to their dreams, but it was the beginning of a nightmare. In this old house, up this staircase, behind this locked door, something lives, something strange, something powerful, something evil. Stay away from that door! It will possess this woman. It will destroy this man. It will terrify this child. And no one can stop it. Burnt Offering, starring Karen Black. Are you actually trying to tell me that this house is responsible? Oliver Reed. This house is destroying us. Betty Davis. This house is getting so cold. Burgess Meredith. And this house will be here long, long after you have departed, you believe me? Eileen Heckert. God, when it comes alive, tell them about it. Tell them what it's like. This door lies a horror beyond imagination. Who is it? Where did it come from? What does it want? When you find out, it will be too late. Burnt Offerings.